Um, well, tonight we're going to do things a little bit differently. Um, I'm, I'm actually really excited about this because um, I was telling some of you guys, as I was going through this section, there are some parts of this that I think raises more questions than, uh, than there are answers <laughs> for some things. This is a really interesting and kind of a baffling part of this, this, um, uh, this book. Um, I think this was probably the hardest section of the book. Um, so what we're going to do tonight is I want to, I want to, we'll talk about a few things. I want to set up a few uh, some background stuff so that we can get some of the context, but, um, I want to actually pose some of these questions back to you guys. And I would love to hear, um, what, uh, what you guys think about all this as you've read this, read this and, and kind of worked through this on your own. I, and I would love to just hear, have some discussion around what you guys thought through some of this stuff. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, let me pray for us and we'll get rolling. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word that is alive, it is active, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And uh, it works in incredible ways uh, in us. And I pray that that would happen tonight. Father, that by your spirit, um, as your word says, that, that you would pierce between bone and marrow. And that, God, you would, you would help us uh, really to unveil within us the things uh, that we need to let go of, the things that we need to repent of, and show us our need for you. God, we pray that through this, uh, through this study, God, that uh, you would show yourself then to us, that the answer to our, our sin and our brokenness is you and you alone. So, God, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just start here really quick. One of the things I um, asked you guys to read was Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And the question I posed to you guys was, do you think that this is good news or bad news? (laughs) What did you guys think? You read through the Sermon on the Mount. Do you think that this is good news or bad news, and why? Yeah, unpack that. I'm not that long in faith. I grew up 15, 20 years. Okay. Yeah, who else? Good news or bad news? What do you think? Yeah, 
Yeah, he's he's setting the standard, right? Like this is this is what this is what holiness looks like. He says, "Be be be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect," right? And so he's setting this this standard um, and showing us what is good, and that's good, absolutely. Yeah, it's easy to compare yourself to somebody else and define somebody that's your opinion, not following as close as you are. Yeah. 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 The, the, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, with the blessing and the idea that it's joy regardless of circumstances. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that comes to mind. I think that when, you know, I can imagine, or, you know, When you read it initially, it's just so so different, you know, because he's he's pointing out all the things that uh, blessed are those who mourn, you know. I mean, all these things that he's saying blessed to yeah. are things that you're thinking, wait, well, that, that's not, you know, so backwards, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think it's it's a perfect example of what Jesus did all along. Just, you know, almost take the ball and turn it around and look at it. Okay. But but this guy, he is, you know, he just goes on and on about how wonderful his life is, you know, and his life is good, but his circumstances are good, you know what I mean, right now. Sure. And so, like, I'm like, I, I hear you. That's great. Yeah. But what happens when things, you know, because things will will change, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like. It's, it's hard sometimes when someone has not fallen to their knees or have had, you know, they don't feel like they need, you know, God or Jesus. And, and it's just, it's just uh, I don't know, some, sometimes I, I think, you know, when I, was, when I was going back and reading it, I was, you know, it, it came to mind. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes us boast of, it makes us feel good, you know. Yeah. But 
Well, just look through all that. You, and the, the person you should be looking at is Christ. That's who you're comparing yourself to. Now, right. How do you feel about that? You know what I mean? That's the truth. And so, yeah. So, and that's kind of the bad news. Yeah, that's kind of the bad news. <laughs> so that's the nice thing as you read through this. Yeah. The main thing is this is the bar. Yeah. And I know every day in Christ. I'm not going alone. He's doing everything with me. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that those, those areas are obtainable. Yeah. Some of them we will see here on earth. Mm-hmm. But some of them we ultimately will not see until we're in heaven. Right. Yeah. And I just and so, and I've been married long enough. I'm old enough to, to have watched parents pass away now. I'm dealing with a, a father who's probably going to pass away this fall from living cancer. And for 20-some years, I prayed for my parents until they were almost 70, until they got saved. Mm. At 70, that's unheard of. And they finally got saved. Wow. Well, now my dad's 81 years old, and he's faced with the hardest time he's ever had. He's raised 11 kids. He's always been a good provider. And he adopted, because there's a, we have a blended family, there's nine kids, and my sister died at 30, and they raised two of her kids. Oh, wow. And so, you know, he chose unconditionally to love me. When my dad couldn't love me, he didn't love me enough to that he could just provide the, the uh, you know, because they were divorced. He was supposed to provide child support for us. He didn't do that. And Ralph clearly said, listen, he either pays up, or he signs his name on this paper here and says, I have custody for him, I'll adopt him, we'll be at those, and I will take care of him this day And that's what he did. Mm-hmm. So for any man to marry a woman with six kids and not turn to him and crime, that's quite a man. Yeah. He may only be five foot seven in stature, but he was a man. <laughs> and if everybody met, he hunted everything, and he could, he's killed more deer than that. He killed squirrels and did everything provided for the family at nine and ten years old. He would go out hunting and bring them. Mm. I mean that but that was that generation. Sure. I mean you guys know what I'm talking about. Sure. So if anything I this this is encouraging me because when you're praying and not and it seems like those prayers are doing nothing but hitting the cinema, just keep praying. <laughs> because it may take twenty some years and you'll see them again. But it's it's you just have to keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. There's a righteousness that we earn by faith yeah. alone. And I, it's, and it's, married for 34 it's years. not. I started dating my wife at 16. We got married at 19. After I prayed and debated with God for a year. Because I had siblings get married out of high school and it didn't work. And so I had that. And God said, but you're not that. Mm-hmm. I know I'm a child of God. Yes, mm-hmm. I get that. I said, but, you know, if we if we do this, Lord, I can't live in an apartment because I can't work nights and have her in an apartment. Okay, here's the house. Well, I need a car. Okay, here's a car. I mean, any and everything I could throw at him, he answered. I mean, immediately answered. Like yeah. one, two weeks on Yeah. I mean, so those were God things that a 19-year-old could, can't make it. And it's dead. And I can literally see his hand in our marriage. Sure. But it's because we Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think the Sermon on the Mount, what it does is it shows us, like you said, it shows us that, that standard that we're wanting to shoot for, which is that's the good news. But it also shows us 
we're never going to get there. And Jesus seems to make it even harder, right? Like he says, you know, you've you heard it said, do not murder. I say, don't even hate your brother. Or do not, he said, don't, don't commit adultery. But even if you lust over a woman, you're committing adultery. You know, it's like, uh, like, yeah, he, wait. <laughs> he took Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, except for one, Sabbath, right? Mm-hmm. And he added to it. Yeah. He made it even tougher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he's like, um, I, I would say he's, he's the correct interpreter of the law because he's, he's, he's taking what the law was doing on the outward side and he's getting to the very heart of it, right? Yeah, and that's what makes it hard because we can, we can do all the outward forms and still not have our heart be right. I had you guys read this because I think that this issue is the very issue that we see in this section in Haggai. The idea of the outward forms, that we can do those outward forms, but our heart can still not be right with God. And, and I think that's what's happening here in this section. So let's, um, let's do a little context here. The date is now December 17th of 520 BC. All right. So if you guys remember, um, the very first oracle happened in August. So now it's been 15 and a half weeks since that first oracle took place. And between the second and the third oracle, so this is the third oracle that we're looking at today. Between the second and the third, a really interesting thing happened. There's another prophet named Zechariah who begins to start preaching. Okay, this happened just like the month before the, uh, this, this third oracle. And if you look at, just if you flip over to Zechariah, it's the very next book. If you flip over to, the, to that, um, the very first chapter, the main theme of Zechariah is really similar to what's happening with ha- in, in Haggai as well. Look at verse 3. Uh, Haggai, or sorry, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. He says, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. So with that in mind, what does this tell us about the the spiritual condition of the people in in Israel at the time? What, What might that tell us? If the message of Zechariah is return to me, what's the problem? They're turned away from him. Yeah, yeah. This it's funny. Like Haggai has been already speaking. You know, August um, and early September, he's already had these oracles. He's already proclaimed them, and still they're far from God. There's still something wrong, and so uh, they're building the temple. We know that, but there's still a problem. So let's go ahead and read uh, our section here, Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through, let's just read the, the beginning. Let's read 10 through 14. Could someone read that, those five verses? 10 through 14. Thank you. 10 14? Yes.
their response, this is how it is with this, with this people of this nation, says the Lord. Everything they do and everything they offer is defiled by their sin. All right. Thank you. So interesting. It's like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like Levitical jeopardy is what's happening here. <laughs> you, know, you get these questions that he's, that he's coming out with them, and he's asking the priests what, what happens when, the, when, when, when uh, these two circumstances take place. I think in order to understand this, we have to understand a little bit about the book of Leviticus. And this is where um, I think, I know like for people like me, and I read through Leviticus, and I'm like, I have no idea. You know, like it's like it's so monotonous uh, at times to read through it. Um, have you guys ever tried to read through it? Is it yeah? Um, has anybody tried to read through it and then given up? Because I definitely have. Um, it's it's a rough it's a rough book to get through. But but here's the thing about it is as you're reading through it, um, I, I remember the first time I read it uh, and actually got through the whole thing. I came away with first of all, there's a lot of blood involved. Like, there's just blood, blood, blood over the whole thing. Um, but second of all, it was just how difficult it is to keep things holy. You know, like, how, how incredibly challenging it is for things to be holy. And what it takes to make something holy is just unbelievable. It reminds me a lot of the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of ways. Because it's like, you know, Jesus is setting the standard that's so high. And that's what the law does. The standard is so high over and over again. So I think what we need to do in order to kind of understand this is to go back to Leviticus chapter 10, uh, Leviticus 10.10. And I want to look at just a few passages in Leviticus so that we can understand what exactly they're getting at here with these questions. Um, things that are holy, things that are defiled, things that are unclean. What, what, is all, what does all this stuff mean? Um, Leviticus 10.10, he says, um, let's see, have everyone get there. I think that this verse is kind of the theme verse for the book of Leviticus in a lot of ways. Um, Sort of the pivotal verse for it. Um, In this verse, it says uh, the Lord is speaking to Aaron, who is, uh, at the time, he's the high priest. Okay, and he is giving the priests these uh, kind of this charge about what they're supposed to be doing and why all these laws are so important. So Leviticus ten ten, here we go. Says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Okay. So the second half is pretty easy. It's like, okay, teach all the law, right? But the first part of it is interesting because he says you're just to, to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And there's a little bit of a difference of opinion with some commentators on what all this means, but I think the thing that makes the most sense is this, <laughs> okay? This passage is describing two sets of opposing conditions, Holy and common, all right, and then clean and unclean. Two sets of opposing conditions, all right? So in your notes, you have some definitions there uh, that we're going to fill in here. So the first is common. 
things that are common. What, what does that mean to be common? This is the natural state of most creatures and things. The natural state of most creatures and things. So that the fill in there is natural state. Yeah. So everything that is common can either be clean or unclean. Clean or unclean is a subcategory of, of common. All right. Now, sometimes this is their natural state, like certain animals were considered to be unclean. Right. Like, remember, though, those laws, it's like um, they're like, yeah, things with hooves, uh, certain birds Stuff like that. These are unclean birds. So that's our natural state to be unclean. And there's other ones that are clean uh, just naturally. They're naturally clean. Sometimes, though, the state of being unclean uh, is brought on by circumstances where it's like polluted by sin or if you touch a dead body or things like that. There's like laws against that. But all of these things are common things and they can be either made clean or unclean. Okay? So then you have the opposite of common, which is holy. All right? And holy is a special state of grace, a special state of grace where the person or object is set apart for God's purposes. All right? So let's think about a, a, what would be considered holy. So like, first of all, there's God, right? God is considered holy. This is uh, the only thing that naturally is going to be holy, <laughs> all right? God is the only one that will naturally be holy. But there are common things that can become holy, and they only become holy, get this, when there's two conditions. When one, God calls them to be holy, like, so God has to call them to be holy, and two, they have to follow the commands laid out in the law. Okay, so let's take an example. In, in the temple, there was like the Holy of Holies, right? Like the inner, the inner temple. And inside there, there's like the Ark of the Covenant. There's a, a bowl of incense. There's a, and there's a lampstand, like a big golden menorah, all right? Well, the, let's take the menorah, for example. There were laws that talked about how this thing, it could not be in the Holy of Holies unless it was absolutely sanctified. It had to be holy. So God said, make this thing, first of all, and, and, and he reserved it to be set apart as holy. And then he said, here are the laws on how you are to make it holy. You're supposed to like douse it with blood and these are the animals that you're supposed to kill in order to make it that way and all, all this sort of stuff. That, that's how it gets made holy. So, so you have both of those things happening. First, God declares it, sets it apart as something to be holy. And then secondly, it has to be has to follow the laws for making it holy. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so, so those are those first two categories. You have common and holy, and those are opposites. Then you have the clean and unclean. Like, like we were saying, common things then can be clean or unclean. So clean things, that's the natural state of most common things. The natural state of most common things. And then unclean, um, the definition there is the substandard condition. The substandard condition brought on by contact, bodily processes, 
and sin. And certainly there's some things that are naturally unclean, like those animals and whatnot. So, does that make sense so far? You guys kind of following? So, so you have this chart in your, in your notes there. Because the rest of Leviticus is all, and actually there's parts in Exodus and Numbers that explain all this as well. But all of the priestly law is designed to explain how to distinguish between these things. So Leviticus 10.10 is kind of the theme verse. It's like you are to distinguish between the common and the holy, the unclean and the clean, right? So, he, so, so this is kind of how it worked. Things that are unclean could be purified and made clean. And then if a cleaned thing was then sanctified, then it was holy, all right? Now you could have a holy thing that then was defiled and then it becomes common, and if a common thing was then polluted, it was called unclean. So then the, all of the book of Leviticus is all about this. It, it just explains like, <laughs> you know, if this happens, then this common thing becomes polluted and now it is unclean. And if you want to make it clean again, then you have to go through this ritual in order to make it purified to make it clean again. Right? And if you want to make something holy, then you have to do this to make this thing holy. I mean, that's what Leviticus is like, right? Like as you're reading through it, you're like... What is this about? <laughs> well, that's what it is. It's explaining this system. Okay? Does that make sense? So far, so good? Okay? Now, most importantly, the things that are set apart as holy, those things that are, that are holy, can never, ever come into contact with things that are unclean. And if, if they ever do, those holy things, they become unclean as well. Um, and in fact, a lot of times what happens is, is there's consequences for this. Like if a, I put some examples in there, but like if a chief priest who is working on the temple, working in the temple, he's never to touch a dead body. Um, and it, and it, it puts a stipulation in there. It's like even if it's his own parents, if his parents die, he's not allowed to, to, to bury them. Because he's, since he's working in the temple, then he's set apart as holy. And he, so he can't touch anything that's unclean. Or um, if someone who's unclean approaches any of the holy things that are dedicated to the Lord, someone who um, has, you know, um, it talks about things that make people unclean. So if it's like a sin or some sort of like bodily function, uh, <laughs> there's stuff like that that make people unclean. Well, it says that if they approach any of the things dedicated to the Lord, that they're supposed to be cut off from Israel. Like, boom, get out of here. I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. We have this question, though, in Haggai, because it's dealing with a dead body. So let's go to, let's go to um, Numbers chapter 19. Uh, here, here, just more law on, on how all this works. Uh, num- Numbers 19, verse 11. Numbers 19, 11. Um, can, someone, can someone read that? Uh, verses 11 through 13. Okay, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be 
Yeah, and through 13. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, does not cleanse itself through vows and tabernacles. That person shall be cut off from Israel as the body, for the purity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still unclean. Okay. Interesting. So, all right. Uh, someone sees a dead body, touches the dead body, they are unclean. So he's a common person, can be clean or unclean, but he touched the dead body, so now he's unclean. He's unclean for seven days. There's a ritual where on the third day and the seventh day, they have to follow this ritual to be clean. But if he doesn't do it, get this, it says uh, he will not become clean and it defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That's what it says. It, it defiles the temple. And so there's consequences. That person will be cut off from Israel. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. This brings a little bit of light to like a, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why was it that the priest and, and, the, you know, and the Jew as they as they were walking along the road and they saw someone who was beaten and lying in the road, why didn't they go over and help him? Because they weren't sure he wasn't dead. Yeah. Imagine what you would have to go through, especially if you were a priest. All of these rituals, you're unclean for a week. What if you're serving in the temple at, at that time? You're not allowed to touch a dead body, even your parents. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Like, of course they wouldn't touch him, you know? It's, it's crazy. So this, this law is, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, so with all that context, let's go back to Haggai. And we're going to look at what he gets into here with this. So, so he's asking two questions, right? Question one, does holy meat carried in your garment? So you've got, you know, imagine you're wearing like a robe and you're, Hold it up like this, and you've got meat in your garment. That is considered holy. All right, so you've got holy meat in your garment. So does it give the garment the power, because you're touching the garment to something else, to a common thing. Does it give the garment the power to make a common thing holy? What's their answer? No, it doesn't. Why? Because meat can't make anything holy. <laughs> right. What what makes something holy? What are the two things? Yes, you have to have both. You have to have both of those things in, in, in place. So meat's never going to do that. Question two. Does contact with someone who is unclean, like touching a dead body or something like that, does that make one of these common things unclean how do they answer yes yes it does because uncleanliness is like a plague it spreads faster than holiness does or cleanliness does right again this comes this brings us to this this realization i think of how difficult it is to be holy how difficult it is to remain clean. Like everything about human life brings us back to uncleanliness. Uh, 
defiles us over and over and over again. And it's almost like it had been down. Let's just go through the ritual and become clean again. Right. And they had that yeah. for, for, for like, uh, it was the thing for um, uh, unknown sin. They had a ritual for the atoning of unknown, <laughs> unknown sins and things. Like, they're like, eh, well, let's just, <laughs> we don't know about everything else, you know. Um, it's crazy. Okay, so, so here's what I want you to do. At your tables, I would love for you to take just a couple minutes and look at the questions that you have there. Um, there's three questions for you to, to just think about. And I just want you to take like 10 minutes or so and work through these questions. What do you think is the state of the people in Haggai? What is Haggai saying about the state of the people? Are they holy, common, clean, or unclean? All right. Are their sacrifices acceptable to God? And the last one is, is really application here um, because – there's a, what we need to get to is why is, there, why is their sacrifices unacceptable to God? So take just a couple minutes at your table, and I would love to just have you guys discuss that, and then we're going to come back and talk more about it. I'd love to, to kind of hear just a little bit uh, what you guys have been talking about. So let's go back to question one. Um, what do you think is the state of the people? What, what did you guys land on? Common and unclean. Is that what you guys thought too? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I'd agree. <laughs> I, I think that's the indictment, right? Like verse 14 is like, so it is with you, right? So it's like, wow, okay, there's something there's something going on here. Um, even though they're rebuilding the temple, they're, they're doing it. <clears throat> but there's something missing. So the question is, is are there, are there sacrifices acceptable to God? Why or why not? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but obviously, because he's withholding favor from them in terms of their crops and their produce and so on and so forth. Right, right. So there's something happening there where there's this curse, right? right? According to the Mosaic Covenant, there's this curse that's happening. So it's like, so the question is why? Why is it that even though there's they're building the temple. Why is it that they are still under a curse? Oh, okay. So like the fall and sin and. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but even more specifically, we can kind of drill into some things. So yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 What do you guys think of that? So he's, he's talking about the idea of that they're just checking boxes where they're they're doing what God's telling them to do. They got the outward form of religion, but their heart has not really changed. What do you guys think? I, yeah, <laughs> I'd, agree, I'd agree with that, yeah. So, so then, you know, the, the third question kind of gets into that idea, you know. Um, 
the people, they busied themselves with sacrifices and outward observances and neglected the most important thing, the real purity of their heart. They turned to religion rather than trusting the Lord. So that becomes a really practical question for us because we do the same things, right? We busy ourselves with these outward forms of worship and neglect the purity of our own heart. Um, so how do we see that happening? And I mean, if, if you'd like to give an example from your own life or if you'd like to say, you know, maybe you see this maybe happening with, with people that you know or, or see this happening in the church or whatever, but how does that happen in our church? What, what, what are some ways that this happens? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because in, in chapter 1, uh, the Spirit of the Lord took over the, the people and, and the two leaders. Right. So, why? So, yeah. Why do we have this question? Our answer is everybody else can give. I, I thought their, their heart was in it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it seems that way. We can even go back to Ezra, though, because remember they started building the temple before, and Ezra tells us that the Lord stirred their spirit then, too. It's really interesting. So it's like their spirit is stirred, seems like they're on the right track, but then they kind of like drop off, like something something happens, and then their spirit is stirred again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're the same way, right? No. <laughs> when yeah. When you say that their spirit was stirred, is that the same as saying that they were filled with the Holy Spirit? No. No. I, I, I think there's... So it's not a constant thing that they have in the West the Holy Spirit. Correct. Which we have. Yes. Now, we can be stubborn. Yes. And we can choose to not listen to that still small voice. Yes. Because I have, just an example, I had a younger brother that we ran around, we did a lot of things. Together. We went to church together. We did all these things. And one night, he chose to drive home drunk. Mm. Well, that choice got rid of his whole life. Mm. Yeah. He rented a car. The car caught on fire. The person that was in it. And sure. they were getting uh, 60% of their body burned. And they ended up dying in the hospital three months later. Oh, and wow. The ironic thing is they were the owner of the bar. And they had been serving. Okay. So... The saving grace for my brother was that he went around, he admitted his sin, he didn't deny it. Yeah. He faced it straight on, and he went around and told schools and stuff why he could, why one poor decision could change your whole life. Sure. Now, sure. Did he not have to serve time? Yes, he did. Yes. Yeah. For two and a half years, I went five years Oh, wow. But it could have been a whole lot worse. Absolutely. And I asked him one time, I said, John, why did you do that? I said, did you do did, the, did you not hear the Holy Spirit? I heard it loud and clear. I chose to disobey. Mm, mm, yeah. And, and that's where our stubbornness comes in. Yep. A lot of times we know what we need to do. Yeah. But we choose to disobey. Yeah. So I think that's a really good distinction because, you know, be, be, between what, what we're saying, where like in the New Testament church, you know, we see that we we have we are now the temple of God. God's presence, His Spirit dwells within us. That's different than what's happening then. Um, it was promised. The Spirit was promised to them back then. Okay, but they didn't. Only certain people had the Spirit of God. For example, like um, Samson, right? right? So it said that that the that Samson 
at certain times would be filled with the Holy Spirit and that he would then have this incredible feat of strength or things like that would happen. So, um, uh, but the, you didn't have the same indwelling of the Holy Spirit at that time. It was, it was different. So, uh, so there's a distinction there for sure. So, so, so yeah, how, does, how do we do that sort of stuff? How do we busy ourselves with those outward forms of worship but then neglect our inward uh, purity of our heart? Sort of mirrors the sermon yesterday. Mm. Surrendering mm. to God. Yeah. Uh, we're afraid to do that. For some reason, we think we're we're in control. We're happy to be in control. Let's put it that way. It's fear. It's fear. I think is why we do that. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. But I think as Christians, more often than not, we forget that to die to self is a daily. Some days it's an hour and that's what gets us in trouble. Right. We, we relax and endure that relax that's when we stop to do things or you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we talk about lust in there and you know, if you're aiming off your stomach and cut it off, you know, just like if, if you see a woman coming at you that may be not dressed appropriately and she wants to bend over the Right. But that takes thinking far enough to head to say, cool, I can see this is going to happen. And she's an attractive young woman, I'm so not, but I have attractive young daughters. I don't want somebody looking at me that way, so what do I do? You know, to make sure I don't put myself in that position to embarrass her or me. Yeah. And so, yeah. I think that's, we hear the promptings, but we don't act on the Right. Right. Sure. I think sometimes it even goes a step further, right? Where we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, but the idea of, of just sins that we keep going back to. We keep going back to those sins. And then, you know, we, we come in here on Sunday and we go through the forms of worship. You know, we, we worship, we take communion, and we do all those things and stuff like that. Um, and I think sometimes we feel guilty over it. You know, or, or like or like maybe God is convicting us a little bit on, on the things that we do, but then other times we kind of ignore that because we like to go back there. We yeah. we love that sin so much, so we, we go back to it and then and so we go through the forms of worship and we start to we start to think that we can do both. You know, we start to think that we can we can come in here on Sunday and we can put on a good face. Um but then inside we're a mess. <laughs> You know, um, and we can we can fool each other. We can fool ourselves <laughs> doing that, um, but we can't fool God. They couldn't fool God. <laughs> you know, God God saw right through them, and that's why He sent Haggai to call them out on what was going on with them. They're doing the outward signs of worship, but. They were neglecting what was really going on in their heart. They were ignoring the worship of God the way that God was asking to be worshipped. Um, I, I sort of liken it to Second um, Corinthians chapter six. Um, that was the passage that you read as well. So, 
if we flip over there really quick and kind of show you what we're talking about. 2 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 14. Um, so this is the famous, you know, do not be unequally yoked passage. That's the one we like to tell all of our teenagers to make sure they don't date uh, non-believers. Uh, so <laughs> there's that, that whole thing. Um, but there's a bigger context for this passage, which I think is really good because he's not just talking about dating. Uh, he's not just talking about who we marry, things like that. He's talking about any kind of partnership, really, um, which is – it's such a broad category. Listen to what he says here. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship – has light with darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial? So that, that's like a, uh, uh, a, a false god that was worshipped at the time, right? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement, listen to this one, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Right? So here we are. Back to the temple again, you know. Um, we are the temple of God. It, it's kind of like imagining if, if you had the Holy of Holies, you know, where you have the Ark of the Covenant and the lampstand and the bowl of incense, and you're just going to start piling all sorts of garbage in there. We're gonna, that's where you're going to put that, you know, big old stack of porn, and you're going you're gonna to have, uh, you know, some crazy TV show that's in, that's in there that you probably shouldn't be watching, but you watch anyway, and all of the, the lies and the uh the lust and the and and all the stuff we just are cramming the holy of holies with all of that stuff that that's what it's saying what does the temple of god have with idols right it's crazy it's like whoa i mean when we start to think about it that way we're like wait a minute who am i god says i'm the temple of god right and he comes back to this as like you know, when we start to think about this in, in that context, it's like, of course, they, they, they would never put any of that stuff into the temple. Never. So, so he, he parallels that whole thing. So, yeah, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, look at what he does. I think this, this second part is so interesting. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And now he's going to quote. And this is really interesting. This quote is five different passages from the Old Testament. Okay? And Paul stitches them together intentionally in this way. Look at what he says. He says, as God said, first, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is, this is that covenant promise, right? That God, he wants a people for himself. And he says, this is going to be my people. He is, what, what are the rules for things being holy? calls them to be holy and then and then there has to be obedience too right so look at the second thing therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them says the lord and touch no unclean thing isn't that interesting you see the same two things right there god is calling them out calling them holy they are separate they are his people he is their god then you have now follow the law. 
Like he, he's saying, be holy, be separate, act this way. But then you get to the end of it. Look at what, what the difference is. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The relationship changes. It changes from being a, I will be your God, you will be my people, to I will be your father and you will be my son. Right? There's a blessing of God's, of this relationship, this blessing of this intimate relationship with God through holiness, through obedience. You guys see that? And what's so cool about this is, is that because we're not talking about we're not talking about salvation here, I don't think. I don't think that's the issue. The issue is about how do we experience as the people of God, how do we experience the intimacy of the and the blessing of the presence of God? And it's through it's through holiness, it's through obedience. Does that make sense? So he says verse uh, chapter seven, verse one. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I get a lot of times, so I used to be a youth pastor, and a lot of times I'd have kids come up to me and say, like, I just, I just don't feel close to God anymore. You know, I really loved it when I went to camp and I felt so close to God. And now I don't really feel close to God anymore. And I was like, well, yeah. So, so one thing is like our feelings can be fleeting. That's, that's, that's one thing. But, but my second question usually comes back to this. It's like, are we being obedient? Are we actually listening to what God is saying? And are we following what God is saying? Because if we're not, then of course we're not really going to feel close to God. Because that's what this is saying, <laughs> you know, to, to be holy means that God is going to call you out and that you're to be holy. You're, he's going to call you to be holy. And then, but then there's also obedience and that brings the blessing of the presence of God. That's how we get close to God. Um, does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Don't hang with unbelievers. Yeah. Yet we're called to share our faith. Yeah. Paul makes a big deal about going to unbelievers. Right. And living amongst them, per se. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a congregation. Yeah. Okay, so what do you guys think? How how can this work together? Where we're called to be separate. But we're also called to live among unbelievers because we do. We live among unbelievers. Uh, we're called to to spread the gospel to unbelievers. We're, we're called to evangelize. Um, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? Regardless of who they are. So how do those work together? Always. 
disciple maker, you've got to go find those that want to disciple, but that means going to potential um, territories that are, you have to care for. Yeah. You have to keep your guard up and not let the uh, environment take you and bring you there. Yeah. think does that answer the question for you oh okay (laughs) so so what he was saying was is uh that we are called to be ambassadors to live amongst a foreign people but we're representative of a kingdom to that foreign to that foreign country so so our, our goal is to is to serve as ambassadors, to love others, but to not let them uh, influence us. Right? Much better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you nailed it, though. I think, I think, it's, I think it's right on. Yeah. So it, it's a weird line we walk sometimes. Sometimes we're not... I, I, I remember a time for myself um, when I was a young Christian, there was a period of time where I had, I had some friends who um, started making some decisions that I just didn't want to go down that road anymore. And I had to kind of separate them, separate from them because uh, they were dragging me down. And I'm like, I just need to, and it, it was kind of weird. Like I, I, I didn't, I didn't like get in their face about it, you know, or tell them like, I just can't you know, hang out anymore. I just kind of pulled back and they just kept kind of doing what they were doing. And I just, kind of stopped <laughs> doing what they were doing. But it, I, I, I remember I, I, it was in college and I just, I had to make a very intentional decision to not go that way because I knew that where that would lead me was not where I wanted to go. Um, but it was a bummer because I could have been an, more of an influence on them, but I wasn't strong enough at the time to do that. I, I still had growing to do to be able to, I, I mean, I really needed the Lord's help to do that. And I, just I wasn't ready for that so sometimes we have to make that decision but yeah yeah definitely definitely so so yeah I, I think I mean there's a there's a lot of application there for us and um, what we're seeing here so let's look at this go back to Haggai real quick I want to I want to finish out and I want to get to this really difficult part at the end. Um, so, um, so verse 15. Let's look at that really quickly. Verse 15. He's going to come back to this word consider. Remember that from the first chapter? Consider your ways, right? Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, 
Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Okay. This section gave me a lot of problems. And I, did, did you guys struggle with trying to like under, follow the logic of what was happening here? A little bit? You did okay? Can you unpack it for me? Like, what was the logic that you saw as you were re- reading through it? Go back to the stories. Basically, it says, you thought you had a lot, you had little. Yeah. That was several of the stories. Yeah. But this day forward. You don't even have to hear the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. Things are going to be different, right? Yeah. yeah. Today's the day. Yeah. Now, if you've been to 24, yet on the very first page, somebody else read December 17th. I had the 24th on both cases. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the 24th day of the month, of but of a Jewish month. And sometimes in the calendar, it, it, it's... It, it, it's disputed whether that's December 17th or the 18th, because I think yours says the 18th. Yeah. Um, it's, the 24th. <laughs> it's, it's the 24th. It's the 24th of the, of the uh, ninth month, of, but it's the Jewish calendar. Uh, okay. so you that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a good question, though, for sure. So here's – I think you're right on there's something here where you see him kind of looking back, first of all. What, what, what did our life used to look like? So that's what I put there. Um, if you look in your notes, because the question here is what are they supposed to consider? Like he, he says consider three times in this section. Consider, consider, consider. So what, is, what are they supposed to consider? The first part, uh, verses 15 through 17, I think is talking about that they're supposed to consider how things used to be. So the fill in there is used to be. Consider how things used to be. That there's this scarcity that's taking place, and it really comes down to uh, covenant curses. Uh, and I, I put in your notes, uh, Deuteronomy 28, we don't have time to get there, but um, those passages basically say like, you know, the first part is if you obey, then I'm going to heap all this blessing on you. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And a lot of it is very, like, agricultural. Like, you're going to have, you know, the crops and the livestock and all this sort of stuff. But then, verses 15 through 20 says, but if you don't obey, then curses. Curse, 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 curse. Again, it's agricultural. So God promised this blessing and curse kind of system back in Deuteronomy. And this is what's getting played out. Um, He says, verse 17, right? I struck you. This is from God. I struck you. And all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, and yet you did not turn to me. So what was the purpose, you know, the, the purpose of all of this, um, uh, this discipline that God is giving his people? What's the purpose of it? To get them to turn back to yeah, yeah, it's for repentance, to bring them back to God. And um, it's almost like I've been holding all this from you, yet you didn't figure it out. Yeah. You didn't see. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so the first thing that he says, he says, 
you know, if you go back to verse 15, you know, he says, consider from this day onward. Um, and then he kind of takes this, this, this sort of parenthetical idea. Like he jumps back. He's like, think about, think about how the past has been. You've had all these curses, all these things that have been happening, and yet you didn't turn. These are things that I did to try to get you to repent, and you didn't. So he comes back to that again. Consider from this day forward. This is back at 18 now. Consider from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. So then you get to the second thing to consider. This is verse 19. What are, what are they supposed to consider now? He says, is the seed yet in the barn? Um, uh, let's see. Do you have, you have the new living, right? Can you read 19 really quick, the very last verse? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's this constant. It, 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 it's hard that they. When I read a couple commentaries on this, they, this the Hebrew here is really weird, and so like how it's translated between NIV because you have the NIV right, and the ESV and the New Living. It's it's people take different perspectives on this, but I think that the general principle is the same, and it's that there is seed and harvest that either has been planted or is about to be planted. And that from this day forward, things are going to be different. That, that even if, um, like, like some people think where, where it says in the ESV, is the seed yet in the barn? Some people think it's rhetorical. And the answer is no, that maybe it's not in the barn. Why is it not in the barn? Well, because it's already been planted. Um, but, the, you know, the, the New Living says, no, the seed isn't in the barn. And so, or, or it's still in the barn. It hasn't been planted yet. Yeah. So, so, but either way, it's looking forward to the future. That, that, that the next time that there's a harvest, that things are going to be different. That there's going to be blessing. Okay? The previous harvest was the previous Yeah. When they should have had more. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's what you see when, when he's talking about, like, the past, because he talks about this scarcity that's going on, right? Like, you should have had 50, but there was 20 and, uh, you know, all this stuff. Um, yeah. I'm giving you a promise now while the seed is still in the barn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what I mean. Like, the Hebrew is weird. Uh, it's hard to translate it. But I think the point is the same. The point is that the next time around, things are going to be different, yeah. right? You have not yet harvested. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so I think the second thing here is where it says, uh, number two, verse 19, consider how things will be. Consider how things will be. Now, I think that there's some, there's some question about what this last part means because he says, but from this day on, I will bless you. Here are my questions for this. And this is what I just want to, I want to ask you what you guys think or how you read this. Number one, um, I just think that this passage 
it doesn't give us a whole lot to go on. Uh, it's a little bit vague, <laughs> okay? So, so number one, are the people, is it saying that the people are now going to be obedient and therefore they're, they're earning the blessing of God? Or is it saying the people are, are still not obedient and God in his speaking to them is saying, you know what, I'm going to bless you by my grace, or <laughs> um, does this idea of blessing, if that's the case, it, does this blessing then point to something greater? Does it point to something more? Um, like, for example, like, you know, when we see this, we're, we're, we're seeing this abundant provision. Like, we're talking about God saying, you know how all these curses, they were pulling back from this abundance that you were supposed to have. But now I'm going to pour out all these blessings on you to have this abundant uh, harvest. And then Jesus comes along and he says in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it to and have it abundantly is what he says. Right. So so is this a picture like a, like this, a small snapshot of what's to come? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering what you guys think. How did you read that? Did you read it as they're obedient now and so now there's, there's blessing? Did you read it as they're still not obedient, but they're going <laughs> to... That's what I read. They're still not obedient, but God is going to, by grace, yeah. bless them regardless. Okay. I know it says the people rely, are related to Temple Foundation. So there's a little bit of obedience. obedience. Yeah. They took the first step. Yeah. But then and then there's and then there's blessing. It's interesting. I mean, cause because then what we get into, if, if that's the case, what we get into is some question about, well, what's really the role of the law now? Okay? Because the law, I mean, it cannot be just merely about the administration of blessings and curses. Like the law is much more than that, right? Um, it can't just be about like, okay, well, just make sure that you do everything right, and then you're going to receive these blessings. But if you don't, you get all these curses, and then that's all that there is. Um, because the law points to something even more. The law actually ends up pointing to Christ. Um, the law tells us, I mean, the, the, the use of the law for us today is, is, is still really important. Because it, it shows us that we don't measure up and that we need Christ. It shows us, it actually restrains evil. It shows us what is, what is right and good. And so like when the law says do not murder, then we know, oh, maybe I shouldn't murder somebody, right? Um, and, then, and then the third use is it shows us how to please God. So if we're gonna please God, uh, then we know what the law requires. We, we, know what, we know what God asks of us, okay? So the, the law is still useful it points us to Christ, but is that, you know, is that the is that the point? Like, like that that's the thing because it's like if it's like now they're just being obedient and now they're going to receive these blessings, then there has to be more to it than just the administration of the blessings and curses. That's where I got that's where I got kind of lost because I'm like, well, it could be that because it seems like they're they're starting to obey, but they're still like we were talking about they're still common and unclean, right? Couldn't it be that. With 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, because the remnant idea, like, we're we're still following that. So that's a that's a big concept. So <laughs> so when we um, in the in the class that we do called the story of scripture, we talk about this idea uh, because we're seeing this idea of the remnant, where like God is always preserving His people to bring about the coming of the Messiah. And then it, it's kind of like this funnel, like it's really wide at this end and it gets low, it gets narrower and narrower. And when you get to Christ, he's the only one. And then after that, the funnel actually kind of opens up again because now, now, now God's people can, can commit, you know, uh, it's really interesting. But anyway, um, so that, that could be, it could be part of it. That idea. I don't know. What else do you guys think? There's definitely a mystery here yeah. on how all that works together. Definitely. There's no formula to it. Put it that way. Yeah. So I think, um, I think, you know, depending on how we land on that question of, are they being obedient, or is there that little bit of obedience or whatever, and then God is blessing, or if they're not, if they're still not obedient and God is blessing regardless, I think both of those somehow point to Christ, and and I, I, I think first of all, let's say let's say that. There's that little bit of obedience. They're, they're starting to build the temple. There's that little bit of obedience, and they're like, okay, God is saying, I see this. I'm going to pour out my blessing. I'm going to pour out my blessing. So the first thing that I think is, if that's the case, 
that means that if you go back to the law, um, that's definitely part of God's law. Um, Deuteronomy 28 makes it very clear that if they obey, that there is this blessing. And there's this cause and effect relationship with that stuff. And it's there. It's definitely there. Um, the, if that's the case, though, then what that means is that the law is, must be pointing to something greater. And I really like um, Galatians 3 when it talks about this. Because Galatians 3, um, uh, and we can turn there really quick if you guys want to check it out. But um, Galatians 3 talks about this idea of the law being our uh, schoolmaster, our teacher, <laughs> uh, things like that. Um, it's this really interesting Greek word, uh, paedagogos. And it, we'll start at um, verse 19. So Galatians 3.19, he says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offsprings, the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, so, so the first part here, just take from that, you know, why, why is there the law? It was added because of sin. There's sin happening. The law needed to be put in place. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So God makes promises, but he also has this law. He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or schoolmaster right there until Christ came in order that what we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So, so if there's the bless, if it's this cause and effect relationship, this blessing and curse idea, then what this is saying is that that was in place not just for the sake of doling out blessings and curses. It was there for the sake of there was sin that needed to be dealt with, and it taught us our need for Christ. And now we can look at, back at it and we can say like, wow, now all of this was, it was keeping us in line, yes, but it was actually showing us our need for him, our desperate need for him over and over again. And, and what that means is that because we can never achieve the law, what does he say? We are now justified by faith. We're just by trusting in the Lord uh, that we are, he says, we are no longer uh, under a guardian, for in Jesus Christ you are also sons of God through faith, right? So, so let's say that's the case. I think I think it points to this idea that we need Christ. Okay. Um, on the other side, <laughs> we could look at that Haggai passage. We could say, no, they're still common, and they're still unclean. 
And God, in his mercy, he's choosing to bless them. Why is he doing that? Is he going against his law? No, because he's holy. I mean, he, he can do whatever he wants to do. He's God, right? Um, he can, uh, if you guys remember from, from Exodus, from last week, it's, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, right? He's going to do what he wants. But to do so would be part of his, uh, uh, kind of like what we looked at two weeks ago, but the idea that he's strengthening his people by grace. And he's showing them, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And when you see that blessing come, you're going to know that I'm in charge. You're going to know that I'm in control over the harvest and I'm in control over the, the rain and, and everything that's going on here. And when I bless you, then you'll see that, that, I'm, that I'm true and that you can trust me through it all. So it's pointing to the idea that, that through that grace, that it's actually teaching them to trust God in the midst of it. So both are good. I think, I think both options are, are interesting and good. I, don't, I just don't know where to land on it. <laughs> and, I, and I think there's, the commentators are, are, are uh, in disagreement over that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a lot of it, I think, just lands on, on, on you. Like, what do you think is going on there? And either way, I think we end up getting to Christ. We end up getting to, to seeing our, our need for Jesus and that we can trust God through the, through, through the midst of it. You know? does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs> well, we are definitely out of time. Um, I, I, I want to just close with this. this um, I put it in your notes, this quote. I, I think that this... He, he summed it up really well, I think, this whole thing. He says, Our salvation cannot possibly come to us in the form of a religious self-help program. Right? <laughs> it must necessarily come from outside ourselves, from an act of God's free grace that radically cleanses us. Haggai announces just such a radical program of salvation to his hearers. Their circumstances will not be transformed by a slow process of moral improvement as they gradually learn to live rightly with the help of an anonymous higher power or even the true and living God. No, their salvation comes solely from God's decision to give peace to his people through dwelling with them, a decision that was concretely symbolized by the rebuilding of the temple. The work of rebuilding would result in nothing less then new life, peace in all its fullness from then on. God had decreed a radical change of status for his people from defiled to clean so that he could once again dwell in their midst and receive their gifts. Yeah, yeah I, think, I, think, I think he nails it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, let me pray for us. And, uh, it, and what I would love to, on the back page of that, there's, there's still some more questions that, um, if you'd like to kind of think through those, I, I think that would be helpful. Um, and uh, the home reading is at the bottom there. Much, there's actually uh, less for this last week. So next week's our last one. We're going to look at this, this last section of Haggai and um, really going to talk about the, 
uh, the king. <laughs> this is a really, a really cool passage and uh, how this all works together. So we'll talk about that next week. All right, let's pray. God, I want to just thank you for being so good and gracious to us. For, for your word that is so amazing that it is, uh, it is transcendent. It comes from you to us. And we uh, really, we, we can't fathom all of its mysteries. Uh, the way that it's teaching us about you and teaching us about ourselves um, and how that all works together. Sometimes we don't understand God. But Father, I pray that uh, in the mystery of some of those things that that God, that you would show us that we can trust you no matter what. That you would show us that that you are good, you are you are righteous, you are holy, but that also that you have called us out to be holy. You have, you have shown us how to be obedient and to, um, and to follow what you have commanded so that, so that we too might be, as your word says, a, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people that belong to you. And so God, would you help us in that day by day? Would you give us the ability um, by your spirit, through your gospel, to be able to, um, to do that so that we might be your people and experience the blessing of your presence? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.